That was the amazing opening music to The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, released in 1951 by 20th Century Fox, and that opening music was, and all the music in the film was composed by Bernard Herrmann, who's now become one of my favorite composers. Mine too. Especially after uh, the last couple podcast episodes. And this is the beginning of our Robert Wise movie marathon. Oh, wait, no, this is the second one that we've done. The Curse yes. of the Cat People was the first one. <laughs> Actually, we've done two others before that. That's right. So really, if you put them all together, we're going to end up doing uh, six of his movies. And so, uh, yeah, you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net or on Facebook, search for classicmoviereviews.net and you have to spell that all out as a, as a word in Facebook when you look for us. And then in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, you can just find us by searching for Classic Movie Reviews. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from North Bend, where spring has fully arrived. we got flowers blooming out in the front yard today. Nice, nice. After all that snow, it's a welcome change. This is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles welcoming you all back to uh, Classic Movie Reviews. And the day the earth stood still, which I went to with my father on my 10th birthday. Wow. It seems like only yesterday. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> Time flies. And the music, it's an understatement to say this music was involved in the film. Man, there's parts where it's driving the action and other parts where its absence uh, it makes the movie even better when they're yeah, chasing Klaatu. You just get the street sounds and the tension building. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. What a wonderful, wonderful film. Yeah. Robert Weiss. Yeah, we've done The Haunting. The Andromeda Strain, The Curse of the Cat People, and now The Day the Earth Stood Still. Came out in September of 1951. Was a huge success. And uh, where to begin? Well, let me begin by the opening. Uh, when, the, when those newscasters are announcing the arrival of the spaceship that's going 4,000 miles an hour, Reports are coming in from all over the empire, from all over the world. The government has not yet issued any statement, but there seems to be no question that there actually is a large unidentified object circling the earth at incredible speed. This is Elmer Davis again. We still don't know what it is or where it comes from, but there's something there. It's been tracked around the Earth by radar, traveling at a rate of 4,000 miles an hour. This is not another flying saucer scare. Scientists and military men are already agreed on that. Whatever it is, it's something real. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. This is H.V. Kaltenborn speaking. Here in the nation's capital, there is anxiety and concern, but no outward sign of panic. As a matter of fact, there are signs of normalcy. The beautiful spring weather, 
the tourist crowds around the public monuments and other buildings. Those were all people that we would listen to on the radio as a kid. H.B. Kaltenborn, Drew Pearson, and my dad's favorite, Gabriel Heater. He would comment on Gabriel Heater and get mad at his uh, news broadcast. <laughs> it's it it hilarious. And here they are. They're all at the beginning uh, doing cameos. I, I had forgotten that that was in there. Wow. I think that adds to the, the veracity of the movie. It, it gives it a sense of that this is really happening, kind of like with uh, War of the Worlds, you know? Yes, and, and nowadays uh, the videos uh, or the movies will often have uh, CNN or some other cable news network people reporting to add that realism. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and, and I would back it up just a little bit and say that the opening titles were really cool too, like how they... Are flying how we're flying through space and then we're coming into closer to earth and and i always imagined in my mind when i watched this up until this time that klaatu came from another solar system like another part of the galaxy uh, but after listening to him talk about how he traveled 250 million miles that's actually within our solar system so that kind of changed it a little bit for me in 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 terms of kind of how this movie is placed in in the universe of science fiction you know it's like there's another planet in our solar system with this advanced race in this movie anyway i hadn't thought of that either but i i did realize when he said 250 million miles that it wasn't as far as uh i might have previously thought about the other thing that was in the I, I agree with you in the opening with the music and the uh, the wonderful uh, photos of outer space or the recreations of it, and then the landing of the saucer in Washington D.C. How well that was done for the time, and the people running out of the way and all. I just thought, man, what an amazing director Robert Weiss was. Yeah, I think it's the it's the restraint that he shows. Like he he uses the technology that's available in a way that is very convincing. So when the spaceship is flying over the city, all it is is this glowing sort of cylinder almost. Um, whereas in some other movies, they try to like have an actual UFO kind of hung from a string, and it, they try to make it look more yeah. detailed. And, and and this is way more effective. Way more effective. It's really a good example of where less is more when you kind of have your imagination in parts of the film as well in terms of what's happening. It's just, it works so well for me. Totally. And, and then even when it lands, you, you get a sense of weight from the way that they did that where it, it slows down and then just sort of lands in that field. And that was something I thought about this time too is the way that the robot and the spaceship just look heavy. You know, not just the way they described them, but the way that they're presented. They just look like they're this enormous, you know, machines. I hadn't thought of that, but it's really true with the robot, the way he moves. Yeah. And and, and the, and the uh, costume. Uh, just a note on him. I looked it up a little bit in more detail. The uh, actor that played Gort, the robot, Locke Martin, was seven feet, seven inches tall. That's a huge, huge man. And he died at a very early age of 42, partly because of his physical issues from his height 
And they could only use him in that costume for a very few number of minutes at a time because it was so hot and his health wasn't too good at the time. Yeah, that's interesting. Patricia Neal, when she was making the film, said that she didn't think that this was going to be anything other than one of those run-of-the-mill science fiction movies that comes out for the Saturday matinees and didn't realize at the time that it was going to become this, this classic science fiction film. And I, and I thought that was interesting that, you know, as you're working on something like that, you, you don't really know how it's going to be received or what the end result's going to be. I know, and it, it came out the same year, I think, as uh, The Thing from Another World. Those were two really dynamic and trend-setting uh, films. Did you, and you saw that in the theater, too, didn't you? Oh, yes. Yeah, that one was a little bit scarier than this one. <laughs> at, the, at the age Man. I was, it, I, I've never been the same. No, um, another thing about the opening, and it gets into the other meaning of the film, one of the uh, people uh, that's on the radar that's watching this uh, this uh, flying saucer come into the atmosphere says, Holy Christmas, that thing's doing about 4,000. But that's incredible, sir. That can't be aircraft. Must be a buzz bomb. So right away, you start. I start to think, okay, there's now I start to think there's a whole other meaning to this film that's very subliminal. And when Klaatu finally... Uh, uh, comes off of the spaceship in that uniform, in that outfit with the silver uh, suit and that head, that head uh, helmet. He almost looks like an angel. He's very thin. The saucer's heavy. The monster's heavy. He's almost ephemeral. I think is the right word. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He does look very fragile in that scene, and, and especially after he. Uh, because he's there to present this gift and he wants to give this message to the world and I, I, I don't know, I, I guess it's his, his naivete in terms of how violent we are on the planet but he reaches into his tunic or his, his spacesuit and pulls out this thing that looks like a, a gun like a menacing kind of a weapon We have come to visit you in peace and with goodwill And then one of the soldiers kind of freaks out and shoots shoots that I thing, know. and then the bullet ricochets and goes into his shoulder. But I, I thought he looked so fragile when he was laying on the ground and, and after he'd been shot. And I think it's really good contrast between him and, and Gort. It was, and... Michael Rennie looked like he weighed about 125 pounds. He was so thin. <laughs> in other films I've seen him in, he, he's not quite as as uh, slimmed down as that. He must have been at the low point of his weight. But um, he's also very angular in his look. Yeah, He was a good choice for this. I, I read oh, that they had thought totally. about having... Long, uh, um, Claude Rains, was that who it was that was going to be? No. Claude Rains was one, and I think Spencer Tracy. Yeah, Spencer, yeah, Claude Rains and Spencer Tracy were both considered. And yeah, Claude Rains wanted to do it, but he had a previous commitment. And Robert Wise kind of didn't think that Spencer Tracy would work because everybody knew Spencer Tracy and ha would have all these expectations about what the character would be like because of that. Not a lot of people knew Michael Rennie at the time. 
No, he's very popular uh, in, in the United Kingdom, but not as well known here. You were going to talk about one of the alternate meanings. There's, there's this other meaning that comes through, and I read about it a little bit in the background for the podcast today. Klaatu and just how he looks when he uh, descends from the spacecraft. And then as he kind of moving forward, when he leaves the hospital, he adop- the suitcase and clothes that he has are those of Major Carpenter. And then his na- he uses the first name of John Carpenter. What is it you want? My name is Carpenter. I'm looking for a room. Oh, I see. Are you an FBI man? No, I'm afraid not. I'll bet he is, Mom. I'll bet he's looking for the spaceman. I think we've all been hearing too much about spacemen. Oh, this is Mrs. Benson, Mr. Carpenter. How do you do? And little Bobby. Mr. and Mrs. Barley. And Mr. Carl. How do you do? Hi, Mrs. Crockett. I have a very nice room on the second floor. It has two large windows and gets the sun all day long. Hey, mister, can I help you look for the spaceman? I know just what he looks like. He's got a big square head with three great big eyes. That's enough, Bobby. It's late. Come on. Excuse me. We mustn't annoy Mr. Carpenter. He won't want to stay here. Well, he's really a dear little boy and quiet as a mouse. You're a long way from home, aren't you, Mr. Carpenter? How did you know? Well, I can tell a New England accent a mile away. So in the Bible, Jesus was a carpenter. He had been trained by his father to be a carpenter. And one of the disciples of his faith was John. So we have John Carpenter. And and uh, I read where there was some of that message coming through, but it wasn't the intent to make it very... Uh, very much a part of the film. Well, and I, I wonder, too, there was a story that Robert Wise didn't realize that there was that connection with his name being Carpenter until after they'd filmed. And then he goes, oh, yeah, I didn't really realize that at the time. And I wonder if that was true, because there's such a, an undercurrent of that kind of a second meaning to the movie. I found the, uh, the screenwriter Edmund North's uh, quote, uh, and I quote, it was my private little joke, referring to the subliminal message. I never discussed this angle with Blostein or Weiss because I didn't want it to. I didn't want it expressed. I had originally hoped that the Christ comparison would be would be subliminal. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> I learned something new today. So that was there, but it was the screenwriter who did it. That's the screenwriting, cool. yeah. So and nobody picked up on it when they were filming the movie. That's amazing. Yeah. Well. When I saw it, of course, I was 10 years old, so my analytical skills were somewhat underdeveloped. I just thought it was amazing as a film and the story. Right. Right. So that's the other, the meaning that I I, uh, took away from it. Oh, and and, and the the suspicion of the the military surrounding the spacecraft and what what you said, it led up to the, the shooting of him. Uh, but and then when he, he he's in the hospital, he's been shot. So they're they're doing different tests on him. And that one doctor s- says he comes out and he says, you know, I the skeletal structure is completely normal. The tests show the same for the major organs: the heart, liver, spleen, kidneys, and the lungs are the same as ours. That must mean a similar atmosphere, similar pressure. How old do you think he is? Oh, I'd say 35, 38. Told me this morning when I was examining him. He's 78. Well, I don't believe it. Life expectancy is 130. 
Well, how does he explain that? Says their medicine is that much more advanced. He was very nice about it, but he made me feel like a third-class witch doctor. I removed a bullet from that man's arm yesterday. What about it? I just examined the wound, and it's completely healed. What does he say about it? Said he put some salve on it, some stuff he had with him. What are you going to do with it? Take it downstairs and have it analyzed. Then I don't know whether to just get drunk or give up the practice of medicine. <laughs> yeah, he says something yes. like, I don't know if I'm going to go get drunk or just quit the profession. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and all through the interview that, uh, or the, 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 yeah, the interview, the meeting that uh, Klaatu had with the uh, secretary from the White House, he just, he kind of looked like these people just don't get it. We're so far yeah. beyond where they are. It's just amazing to me. Well, and, that, and I thought that was an interesting scene too because he, the the secretary to the president, is coming up with all these reasons why there's no way that a meeting of all these leaders will happen. And Klaatu is just like, I don't care about your petty internal politics. I yeah. love that line. <laughs> yeah, right. It's when you start going out into space, we're concerned. Yeah, and there's something else I thought about too during that scene, which was the chances of the biology of an extraterrestrial life form being exactly the same as as those as human beings on earth are pretty much like zero i would think so i wondered if he wasn't somehow cloned to be human and that that's not what those people really those beings really would look like on his planet and the reason that i thought that because the original short story um, that this is based on the robot is the master and Klaatu is a clone oh. uh, and kind of a failed experiment of cloning, in fact. And, and there's the, the robot actually clones a whole bunch of different things uh, in the process of trying to reclone Klaatu, who was a being that was on the ship with him but was killed. And anyway, the story, the short story is, a, is quite a bit different than this, but it has some similar things to it with the robot. And But I, I, I really wondered about Klaatu being so human and what that meant. That makes a lot of sense. My takeaway was completely different, which was okay. <laughs> that race that Klaatu represented. And I had not read the, the book from the 1940s. My take was that his species had been on Earth millenniums ago, a huge amount of time ago, and planted us here. And then he had come back, and then descendants of those original explorers came back, and he was coming back to say, you know, if you don't get your act together, we'll turn your earth into an ash. Well, I kind of love that interpretation, too, because I, I love the ancient alien <laughs> and whole There's thing. been so much of that lately. You know? One so of my I, favorite I, shows was the ancient alien show with that crazy guy with the wacky oh, yes. hair that was on A&E, I think it was. That was <laughs> yeah, hilarious. Yeah. But so that's anyway, interesting because well, the, the Alien series, the last two movies in that, Prometheus and Covenant, yes. are based based on that idea that aliens came and, and seeded the planet with uh, human life tens of thousands of years ago. So there, it's, there's like an, there's a thread of this if, of this science fiction theme that runs through a lot of different movies, and I and I like being able to pick out different ideas in this movie of what could be going on you know and and that's another great thing about this movie and i've said this a lot i love movies that leave it more open to interpretation 
Oh, well, yes, and, and speaking as a 10-year-old, I love movies like that, but also that they have a really kind of down-to-earth story that a kid like me could understand at the time. Oh, totally. Just on its surface. And the kid in the movie is only was only about four years older than you when you went to see it, so you probably could have related to him a lot more. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yes, I was wishing I could be him when I went to the movie. You probably wanted his train set is what you wanted. <laughs> it matched mine uh a note on the spaceship another i i i've been spending more time on research i don't know if that's good or bad but anyway frank lloyd wright was consulted on the design of the spaceship and the interior oh wow one person's takeaway from talking to uh, mr wright was the interior of the spaceship looked a bit like frank lloyd wright's uh architectural design for the uh Johnson Wax Company headquarters somewhere, I think, in the Midwest. And I'm like, I don't know whether that makes it better or worse. <laughs> but, the, but the other part is, how did they get that spaceship to open like that? Oh, I read about that. That was That's amazing. Cool. I mean, for 1951? In today's world, they would have done that all with computer graphics, right? But this I know. was an actual, uh, actual thing that they built. And the, the door and the ramp, so what they did is they filled it in with putty and then painted over it so that it was totally smooth. And then they, and then they would run the, fil- the camera and film it opening. And then, of course, when the door opened and the ramp went out, the putty would break. And you wouldn't be able to see that on the film. And then to have it close, they just reverse the film. So that the opening and closing is the exact same film, just one is run forward and runs one's oh, run backwards. Wow. Boy, yeah. was that well done. I do understand about a Gork suit. They had two kinds. One had the zipper in the back. Mm-hmm. So when he was filmed from the front, that was worn. And then when he was filmed from the back, they had one with a zipper in the front. So it always looked seamless. Yeah, that's awesome. The, the magic of film. Yeah, that's so cool. That's and then uh, Lock Martin wasn't strong enough to hold. I think he carries Klaatu at one point, right? He also carries uh, uh, Patricia Neal's character into the spaceship. Yeah, so when he's doing that, um, he's not actually holding them because he wouldn't be strong enough to do that. Yeah. So uh, Rene Rene was in sort of a dolly, and then Patricia Neal. I think there was some wire work that they did, but just amazing. More movie magic, yeah. More movie magic. And then, uh, again, Bernard Herrmann's music. This is one of his finest ones, I think. The way way it's composed and the way it's used in the film. It's one of the first examples of... It's one of the first examples of electronic music in a score. Yeah, used some really uh, interesting instruments, I read. The theremin, he used two different theremins, which yeah. is what a cool instrument that is. That's a, that's a sci-fi movie th- instrument, if ever there was one. <laughs> is that the, do you th- do you, can you recall, is that the same instrument that was used in The Third Man? Remember that? Uh, no, that was the zither. The zither. Oh, that was, was the zither. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, I wanted to uh, take us to uh, John Carpenter's appearance at the boarding house. Okay. Yeah. And he and he enters the boarding house, and they're all watching TV. 
So, so and, just and to they, connect up, well, just quickly oh, to yeah. connect the plot, though. Like, so he gets shot, takes him to the hospital. They have this conversation, and then the secretary's like, "Well, now don't leave. I'm, I'm sure you understand." And and he he just gives him this kind of sly <laughs> smile, like, "Okay, sure." <laughs> and then whatever the next, makes you happy. The next thing we know, he has escaped, of course, and now he's wandering through. Uh, Washington D.C. and he sees that there's a room for rent at this boarding house, and then that picks up with where you were going. He's just discovered that his name is John Carpenter because there's a laundry tag on his suit, <clears throat> and he enters the boarding house, and the people are watching the movie or TV, and they turn around, and you see Klaatu framed in black and white, and again, it's almost mystical to see him standing there in the entryway of the boarding house just for like three or four seconds and then the light comes on they turn a light on and he looks more human but that, that was amazing yeah that was that that cinematography that for that scene was awesome as they say awesome yes. yeah and i actually thought that was kind of chilling too because he's really tall and he's framed silhouetted and they'd just been listening to the news about this escaped alien and then here's this guy <laughs> and I was like that's kind of scary but yeah it was also pretty mystical looking I guess that's a really good word for it I wanted to uh, back up for just a second and uh, talk about some of the actors and the director um, Robert Weiss did every kind of film genre that you can imagine and all of them were exceptional Drama, music, sci-fi, westerns, horror, romance, war. Amazing. Just an amazing talent. And then Michael Rene had 70 films that he did, with wow. including TV. And uh, one that is really a, a good one is Five Fingers, which is a spy film. From 1952, he plays a British counter-espionage agent. We might want to look at that someday. Patricia Neal, she did uh, so many films. I, I forget how many, but The Fountainhead with uh, Gary Cooper in 1949. HUD with Paul Newman in 1963. And went with John Wayne in Harm's Way in 1965. And then how can we forget Hugh Marlowe? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hugh Arlow, in, in addition to his many fine films, 12 O'Clock High, All About Eve, Rawhide, he also did Earth vs. the Flying Saucers in 1956. I love that movie. I know. I love that movie. He was in all the genres, too. Remember him in 12 O'Clock High where he, he was injured and yet he fought through that and, and Gregory Peck felt so bad because he had given him such a hard time and he'd flown with... He had a he had a broken pelvis. Yeah, yeah, oh, he was good man. in that. He's a good actor. A Billy Gray, who I don't like his character in this movie, though. No, he, no, <laughs> he's 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 in it for himself. And Billy Gray, who still lives here in the L.A. area, is a big motorcycle buff. Um, I think our listeners will remember him from Father Knows Best from TV. Mm -hmm. from 19, yeah, he's so recognizable from that. 54 to 1960. And then Sam Jaffe. I saved the best for last, I think. Yes. <laughs> 93 years old, had a long life. He had, a, he had degrees in engineering, mathematics. He was the dean of the School of Mathematics at the wow. Bronx 
Cultural Institute University. He was an actor with his mother on vaudeville. Then he was the dean of the school. <laughs> That's he amazing. Went, he went into acting and, and all again. It's just another movie that we should look at. I'm kind of jumping well, and around. Then we, the, we, we, talked to, we talked about uh, about him a bit in our review of Gunga Dean. Oh, yeah, he was he, Gunga Dean. He, he yeah. played Gunga Dean. <laughs> yep. And in the Asphalt Jungle in 1950, he was the master jewel thief. Outstanding. He was so good. He really, I think he really makes the movie. Him and Michael Rene and Patricia Neal, the three of them are just outstanding in this movie. And again, I agree. Our list, remember Sam Jaffe as Dr. Zorba from the TV medical show Ben Casey in 1961 to 65. And he always had that great hair. <laughs> He's got great He's got hair. Great hair. <laughs> yes. he, wasn't, he, wasn't he wonderful in this film? He was just so, I don't know, it was a perfect blend of his math skills and acting. Yeah, I bet he could actually uh, write and decipher those formulas he was writing on the blackboard. And I really don't do him full credit. He was also a painter and he was into music. Oh, I tell you, wonderful. Well, anyway, that's that's kind of a list of the main folk. Yeah, so um, Michael, yeah, say Klaatu is... Out among the people, I think he kind of says that he wants to see what he's he's feels like he's not understanding something about Earth and Earth's people. So he wants to get out and see see what they're really like. And he spends quite a bit of time with uh, Bobby Benson character. I mean, Billy Gray's character, Bobby Benson. And it's totally innocent. And I feel like it's in the time of 1951, there would never be this like thought in my mind. But I th- I thought there's no way in heck I would ever let my 14 year old son hang out with this total stranger to walk yeah. around the city that i and the whole the you whole had the way same that the boarding house is, <laughs> yeah the whole way the boarding house is set up is is odd too like it doesn't seem like anybody really locks their doors and you know it's it's just a different time it really it really it really is obvious to me like what a different time that was well the, th- to me it, it 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 was a real sharp contrast to the uh introduction at the film when the med- when the military and many of the people were so frightened by Klaatu. Here's this boarding house with none of that. The doors yeah, are never locked. Yeah. There's uh, uh, Everybody's trusting pa- of each Patricia other. Patricia Neal and, and Billy are very trusting. The people are discussing things and have their opinion, but they're not afraid of each other. Uh, so, yeah, that... I mean, I think that was the point, right? Like, that was the that was the difference in the movie that we're trying to emphasize there. It's just that watching it from a modern audience standpoint, it, it it's, it's, it has a whole different kind of like implication to me. <laughs> yeah. Here's this guy that shows up. Oh yeah. We'll spend the day together. Well, yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. But the, the day they spent was something else. They went to Arlington cemetery. Yeah. That's one of my favorite parts of the movie when they just kind of are hanging out together and, one of my favorite scenes is when they're going to look at the spaceship and Billy's asking him, or Bobby's asking him all these questions and he's kind of explaining like <laughs> <Yes>. physics and <laughs> inertia and, and one of the other bystanders says, keep it up, he's really buying it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Carpenter, now can we go see the spaceship? If you like.
I bet that iron guy's strong. I bet he can knock down a whole building. I shouldn't be at all surprised. I'd like to get inside that ship, see how it works. What do you think makes it go? Well, uh, a highly developed form of atomic power, I should imagine. I thought that was only for bombs. No. No, it's for lots of other things, too. You think it can go faster than the F-86? Yes, I should think so. About a thousand miles an hour? Maybe four thousand miles an hour. And outside the Earth's atmosphere, a good deal faster. Well, how could they make a landing? Well, there are several ways to reduce landing speed. You see, the basic problem is to overcome the inertia and... Keep going, mister. He was falling for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then they went to the Lincoln Memorial. And uh, it, it's it's giving Klaatu uh, a different perspective on the whole thing. They're going to go to the movie, but Klaatu has no money, so he gives Billy handful of diamonds for two dollars <laughs> yeah that's his currency <laughs> these his perfect currency. diamonds that can't exist on earth wow um so then he they get home and and klaatu sneaks out and goes to the spaceship and bobby is is following him uh, again like no big deal i'm just gonna go out late at night around the city but <laughs> well mom and her and, boyfriend are at the movie yeah and then that's a cool scene too where uh Klaatu is communicating with Gort with the flashlight I really like that scene and and that comes about because uh as Klaatu meets with uh Sam Jaffe Professor Jacob Barnhart uh he decides that they decide that he needs to give a, a demonstration of the power that he has. It's not enough to have men of science. We scientists are too often ignored or misunderstood. We must get leaders from every field, the finest minds in the world. I leave that in your hands. One thing, Mr. Klaatu. Suppose this group should reject your proposals. What is the alternative? I'm afraid there is no alternative. In such a case, the planet Earth would have to be Eliminated. Such power exists? I assure you, such power exists. The people who come to the meeting must be made to realize this. They must understand what is at stake. You mentioned a demonstration of force. Yes. Would such a demonstration be possible before the meeting? Yes, of course. Something that would dramatize for them and for their people the seriousness of the situation. Something that would affect the entire planet. That can easily be arranged. I wouldn't want you to harm anybody or destroy anything. Why don't you leave it to me? I'll think of something. Maybe a little demonstration. Something dramatic, but not destructive. That's quite an interesting problem. Would the day after tomorrow be all right? Say about noon. And he has to go to the spaceship in order to get the instructions and get all that set up. Uh, all right, we skipped the scene where uh, Professor Barnhart yeah. and him meet. That was, a, that was a good scene. It was, yeah. it was. Professor Barnhart said, I have a thousand questions to ask you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, like that, I like that line a lot. I could watch Sam Jaffe all day long. I could watch this movie all day long. <laughs> <laughs> I have. No. Uh, uh, and I have, yes. So he, he sets up the, uh, the directions for this massive uh power stoppage for a half hour so 
But I had a question for you. When he's on the spaceship and he's activating that screen, yes. Do you think he was? Do you think he was communicating with his home home base on his planet? I do. Yeah, I think he was. I think he was. Yeah. But he, giving them like a status update or something. Yeah, and I couldn't tell if he was doing it, uh, you know, by some kind of Vulcan mind meld, or just <laughs> or just how it went on, you know, how it happened. But yes, I think that screen was a way that he could check in. Because yeah. I think Gort did the same screen when <clears throat> later in the film when he brings Klaatu on board. Yeah, that's right. So we fast forward to the day and a half later, and everything stops. There is no power. It's it's the day the Earth stood still. The day the Earth stood yeah. still. And the only thing that saved would be like essential services, hospitals, airplanes, and flights, and so forth. And people are just amazed i mean they, they're totally scared and professor barnard asked his assistant what well, does this scare you and she said frighten you and she said, oh, absolutely he says good good i'm glad <laughs> yeah and then she asked him well aren't you frightened and he says no i'm enjoying it like i think he liked the silence <laughs> <laughs> gave him a chance to work on his formulas oh i tell you man i was i was wondering it was a, they did a good job with the directing and the cinematography of giving you an opportunity to kind of think about what it would be like to be Klaatu wandering around the city. Um, and I, and I just kind of put myself in his place thinking I'm from this super advanced civilization where, you know, we don't have war, we don't have violence, we don't have pollution. Uh, and I'm wandering around this, this really primitive civilization here on earth. And I thought that what a, cool experience what that would be for him too in a way up until the point when he got shot well yeah getting <laughs> shot kind of sucks but he had that salve that salve that he put on that healed it up right gosh away. i tell you <laughs> remember when he was watching bobby in his lionel train set and he said someday remind me bobby to tell you about trains that don't need tracks and that yeah. made me wonder well, how does that work are they levitating or what magnetic. yeah i was thinking it was a magnetic levitation train probably oh man so now that they're in the elevator and the power goes out and he confesses to uh, Helen that he's the, the alien and she believes him. What is it you want? Before I ask you to be honest with me, perhaps I should be completely honest with you. What happened? What time is it? Just 12. We shall be here for a little while, about 30 minutes. Well, we can try pushing the other buttons. They won't work. Why not? You see, the electricity's been neutralized all over the world. Bobby was telling the truth, wasn't he? Yes. And now she's on his side of trying to make sure that he can get to this meeting with all these scientists so that he can deliver yeah. his message. And now we've got... Um, We've got Tom Stevens, the Hugh Marlowe character, who's also figured out in a different way that, that Klaatu is the alien, that Mr. Carpenter's the alien, because he takes one of those diamonds to a jeweler, and the jeweler is amazed because he says that this is a diamond that can't exist on Earth. There's never been a diamond like this before. And, and this is where the Hugh Marlowe character starts to... His true character comes to light because now he sees an opportunity for himself to become well-known and, and famous 
Yeah, and he, he really reveals himself in one line, which says... Oh, Helen, come on in. Tom, I've been trying to get you all afternoon. I have some terrific news about your friend, Mr. Carpenter. What about him? Helen, he's the man from the spaceship. I had that diamond checked at three different places. Nobody's ever seen a stone like that. After what Bobby told us, that's enough for me. Why is it nobody knows anything about him? Why hasn't he got any money? All right, Tom, it's true. I know it's true. You... How do you know? Never mind about that. But you've got to promise me you won't say a word to anybody. Are you crazy after what happened today? But you don't understand. You don't realize how important this is. Important? Of course it's important. The point is we can do something about it. Well, that's what I'm trying to tell you. We mustn't do anything about it. Believe me, Tom, I know what I'm talking about. He's a menace to the whole world. It's our duty to turn but him in. But he isn't a menace. He told me why he came here. He took. He told you? Oh, don't be silly, honey, just because you like the guy. As, of course, what this would mean to us. I could write my own ticket. I'd be the biggest man in the country. Is that what you're thinking about? Why not? Somebody's got to get rid of him. I'm not going to let you do it. Yes? Believe me, Tom, this is the most important thing in the world. What's his name, Margaret? General Cutler. Yes. Oh, all right, I'll hold on. Tom, you mustn't. You don't know what you're doing. It isn't just you and Mr. Carpenter. The rest of the world is involved. I don't care about the rest of the world. You'll feel different when you see my picture in the papers feel different right now. You wait and see. You're going to marry a big hero. I'm not going to marry anybody. Helen, I... Hello, General Cutler. No, I don't... I think that's the last we see of him. I think so. Yeah. Because then we get into the chase scene, and it's and it becomes... The action becomes a lot quicker now. Yes, and, and what's interesting is the chase scene picks up and the action picks up. The music disappears. Yeah, and you get the street cool? sounds. Cool. I just, I, I noticed that. I didn't even notice that. It, that was, I didn't even notice it until you mentioned it. And it yeah. heightens yeah. the whole action s- sequences. It's the lack of music that makes it even more tense. And and unfortunately, Klaatu uh, gets killed. He gets shot and he, he he's dead. But before that, he, so we th- we think until anyway. we think. But he he then the cab with. With Helen, he tells her what she what she must do, because if she doesn't, Gort will destroy the earth. Yeah. And those famous words yeah. that she had to say, which I can't find right now. Platu, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Platu Varata Niktu. Yes, he had, Nikto, she had to say that. So if something happens to Carpenter or to. Uh, Carpenter's character, or Michael Rennie's character, she has to find Gort and tell him this. And she's able to do that, but man, that was a scary scene. Gort, Latu, Barada, Nick Toe. Latu, Barada, Nick Toe. Yeah, because it's set up earlier that they definitely have the power to destroy the whole planet. And I thought it was so, uh, so interesting. The military had put this highly technologically driven encasing around Gort, which he, immediate, <laughs> which he immediately just melted away. Yeah, that wasn't a barrier for, for Gort at Once all. Once he found that Klaatu had been, had been shot. Helen is able to stop Gort from destroying the world by saying those three words and then that also directs gort to go to the jail where or wherever they're keeping the body of klaatu and he melts the wall and takes klaatu away 
So again, in this film, much as in others that we've seen lately, like North by Northwest, the security is somewhat <laughs> minimal. Yeah, they had almost no two guards no around this security. spaceship. Yeah, what the heck? I would have thought they'd have like a hundred people surrounding the yeah. spaceship at least. So anyway, he takes the body back to this. Well, he, he's already taken Helen onto the spaceship before he goes right. to pick up and Klaatu, then, he, and then he brings Klaatu and then he brings Klaatu back. Sets about kind of the final scenes of the film because he's now and been Gort stopped is, from destroying the world. Yeah, but Gort does some stuff with the machinery and is able to bring Klaatu back to life. Um, in the original script, he doesn't say that line about the higher power. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, that was added because the uh, the Hollywood uh, code said that they needed the, cha- the the interpretation of that was they needed to change that. Hello. Uh, I thought you were I was. You mean he has the power of life and death? No. That power is reserved to the Almighty Spirit. This technique in some cases can restore life for a limited period. But how long? You mean how long will I live? That no one can tell. Again, it gets to this running parallel theme of the movie. One is sort of this uh, parallel to Jesus Christ and the resurrection and, and saving saving the earth. And then there's the more science fiction-y kind of scientific-based theme of this higher intelligence, this alien civilization. And I think think i think even people working on the film were a little bit at odds as to as to what the message was going to be if the screenwriter had this kind of inside i wouldn't call it a joke but an inside yeah. sort of message that he was writing into the into the screenplay here i found it it was the motion picture association of america would not approve the script as written when helen asks Klaatu whether gort has unlimited power over life and death and they rewrote it so that Klaatu would explain that Gort has only revived him temporarily and that the power is reserved to the Almighty Spirit. They had to, they had to yeah, change I, that script because of the production code that was in effect. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that. I mean, that's fine. It's, it's definitely one way to write the movie. I kind of feel it detracts a little bit from me from this idea of how powerful the aliens are. And it also detracts a little bit from my alternate uh, version of the film in which Klaatu is a clone, you know, like <laughs> if he's a, if he's a clone, then it doesn't really, it doesn't matter as much. Like you could just rebuild him yeah. or you could clone another, another one and like implant the memories or something, you know? So there's this whole other way of looking at the film that I like to think about. Which is detracted somewhat by the, the that final line. It does support my view that he was Katu had come back to see how the the early plants centuries and centuries ago had done. True, <laughs> true. So that so it does support that one. Yeah. So it depends on how you want to view it. <laughs> what a what a wonderful film! And then uh, the entire group of scientists and high level military people are waiting outside with Doctor Barnhart. And they're they're asked to leave because, or they're they're, they're thinking of leaving because nothing's happening. And then the spaceship opens again miraculously, 
And now that you've explained how they did that, they probably just reran the earlier opening and closing. I'm, I'm sure they did. <laughs> <laughs> and out comes out comes Gort and and uh, Klatu, complete in his uniform again. Yeah. No, he did. He, Delivering I don't, that message. Did he, right? he didn't have his helmet on then. He didn't have no, his helmet on in the, in the last, last scene. scene. Yeah, because he gives a sign of recognition to Helen and the thanks for her help. But then he really lays it into him. Like, if we don't change our ways, all hell is going to arrive on Earth. Soon. We're sending Gork back. And you will forgive me if I speak bluntly. The universe grows smaller every day. And the threat of aggression by any group, anywhere, can no longer be tolerated. There must be security for all, or no one is secure. Now, this does not mean giving up any freedom except the freedom to act irresponsibly. Your ancestors knew this when they made laws to govern themselves and hired policemen to enforce them. We of the other planets have long accepted this principle. We have an organization for the mutual protection of all planets and for the complete elimination of aggression. The test of any such higher authority is, of course, the police force that supports it. For our policemen, we created a race of robots. Their function is to patrol the planets in spaceships like this one and preserve the peace. In matters of aggression, we have given them absolute power over us. This power cannot be revoked. At the first sign of violence, they act automatically against the aggressor. The penalty for provoking their action is too terrible to risk. The result is we live in peace, without arms or armies, secure in the knowledge that we are free from aggression and war, free to pursue more profitable enterprises. Now, we do not pretend to have achieved perfection, but we do have a system, and it works. I came here to give you these facts. It is no concern of ours how you run your own planet. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace, or pursue your present course and face obliteration. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision... Rests with you. That alone yeah. would frighten me. I love that ending. So good. And I think it's such a co- it's such a great Cold War movie too. Like the fear of atomic warfare and of the rapid pace of change with technology really does a good job of pointing out some of the dangers of that, right? And how we need to be careful about how yes. we handle those technologies. So I, uh, I give the film a ten. Well, me too. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> I love this film. In fact, I think we should review it in another month again. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. That'd be interesting. To, that's an interesting idea, though, to like review a film and then come back to it a few years later and, and review it again. I don't think it would change my mind on this one, but. No, I don't think it would on this one either. <laughs> it's a, as they used to say, it's thumbs up for this film. And Robert Weiss, well, the whole the whole 
the whole crew and, and cast was just perfect. Yeah. And there wasn't really a false character in the whole thing. Well, I felt a little bit like um, Hugh Marlowe's character was a little bit overplayed. Um, oh, but, yeah. But I think it's for effect. I mean, he, he was a little bit one-sided in terms of the way that he played that out. But, uh, you know, I, it didn't bother me that much. Me neither. Well, what are we doing next? He asked. We are doing another Robert Wise film as we continue down this path to the ultimate destination, which is Star Trek, the motion picture and Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Uh, but yeah, we're going to do Run Silent, Run Deep, which I've never seen. So new, new to me. Run Silent, Run Deep from 1958 with Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster and a strong cast uh, all all involved in submarine warfare during World War II in the Pacific. Excellent film. I'm ex- I'm expecting a lot of sweaty men in closed spaces in tense situations. And, and <laughs> add to that a lot of tension between Gable and Lancaster. <laughs> okay, yeah, good. So, so you're you're right on. <laughs> so that's that's our that's our next uh, Robert Weiss. You know, if we continue down this road with Robert Weiss, we will have review. We'll end up reviewing all his films. I <laughs> would be okay with that. I would totally be okay with and that. And I just looked. I think it's over forty. So, and I think we should do a run of movies that Bernard Herrmann has. Oh, scored. We've done quite a few, but there's a few more that I wouldn't mind doing, like Journey to the Center of the Earth or uh, Mysterious Island. He did the music for that. Oh, oh all right. There's no end to what we can do. (laughs) It's our review of The Day the Earth Stood Still and uh, coming to you from sunny, warm North Bend. It's Matt Johnson. And here in Los Angeles where it's cloudy and a bit rainy today, Bob Johnson wishing you all happy movie watching. You know, at this rate, all of our episodes are going to be at least an hour long.